0: Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Celebrity interviews, amazing real-life stories, politics, investigations, a real mixed bag, but with the common thread that they are all, I hope, interesting. This time, Carol Shanahan. Now, I interviewed Carol a few weeks ago for one of my other podcasts, When Sky Invented Football, about her role as co-chair of Port Vale FC. But there's much more to Carol than that, not least the fact that having left school with zero qualifications... She founded a hugely successful tech company, Synectic Solutions, based in Burslem in Stoke-on-Trent, creating jobs, more than 300 of them, in the post-industrial landscape of the potteries. The company helps banks and insurance companies prevent fraud, and 88% of its sales are abroad. So it's no wonder it's won the Queen's Award for Enterprise. Carol, welcome along again. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thank you.
0: And uh, Carol, tell me where it all starts for you, then, because it's a, a long way from being a, a, a successful tech entrepreneur.
1: Well, it was it was interesting, really, because I was born in Lincolnshire near Skegness, and my my mother left when I was six and left me with my dad, and it was a really sort of strange time. And you know, the family you know, you just, in 1963, you did not have. Um, broken homes, you know, I was was the only um, child in my classroom, a broken home. And it was almost kind of your fault. And so when I was eight, my half sister had been looking after, helping my dad look after me, she was getting married. So my dad agreed that I could go back and live with my mom. But only she lived where, from where her family had come from because then she would have support as a single mum and that was west bromwich so i i left lincolnshire and, and in one night and then appeared in west brom and had to go from being this country lass into this town girl and so i've got this real sort of hybrid i'm a bit of both and then as i told you last time when we were speaking my mum was the secretary to one of the albion doctors and and do you know what i thought about it recently i thought it's probably because I was really miss my dad. I've always been a daddy's girl. And you couldn't FaceTime, you couldn't ring, you couldn't do anything. And I think my way of connecting with my dad was to go and walk down to the Albion ground or the Molyneux or Villa Park to go and watch football. And as a 10-year-old, as a 9 and 10-year-old, I would just walk down, go through the turnstiles, Brummy Road, and wiggle my way to the front to watch the match and you know I mean there's been occasions when, so it's been really good and a bloke who I don't know has lifted me on his shoulders you know and you just wouldn't have this happen now but in you know the late 60s by this point you know you did and it was just we were all there and I loved it and I absolutely love football and I love that community feel I felt this real sense of belonging and it, you know, it wasn't particular to, a, mat, to a, a club it was just this being part of this that was bigger than you but then uh, oh I don't know teenagehood went back to my dad in Lincolnshire and I just was I just did not engage in school my biggest talent was truancy. And I was amazing at truancy. I learned so much on problem solving and seeing something through to the end and uh, I'm very creative. And yeah, I'm proud of it. I mean, I was just a, um, a young girl who, who was bright and, and just couldn't engage. I couldn't sort life out. I, I didn't understand what was happening. And so, And then I went back to my mother. So this was this sort of yo-yo in backwards and forwards. And I, I had a friend in West Brom who worked in a employment agency and uh, I was in the office with her one day and she was going through this rolodex all these jobs and she just kept going no 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 and I said oh come on there must be something I can do and I said what's the next one and the next one she says oh no this is no good it's a computer operator it's 18 it's a man it's experience a driver five O levels two O levels and I said get me an interview she's a book Woman, you're 17 you can't drive you've no experience and you've got no qualifications and I said well get me an interview um, and I kept going you're not very good at your job if you can't give an interview and so she did and it was for Hoskins Systems at uh, based at Rubri Owen in Darleston and I went off for this interview this two hours sort of very you know confident outwardly um, and they asked me questions because it was shift work they asked me questions like what would you do if it was one o'clock in the morning and a, one of the blokes made a pass at you to which my 17-year-old went, what difference does the time make? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, was, it was ridiculous looking back. But they gave me the job and I was the first woman. And it was you a know, big thing that they did this because I hadn't ticked any of the boxes on the um, application form. And I just kept, I just kept growing in that. I, I loved computing. I loved it. wasn't called IT then; it was called computing. And I eventually got that like, I could go to be a programmer, and it allowed my intelligence to to focus and become something. And then in seventy nine, I was twenty one, and I went to work for a computer company, a manufacturer, at Edgebaston Five Ways. And on the first day, I met Kevin. And it was a data prep kit, so it was it was taking sort of punch cards, paper tape, and converted them to this very high tech and you know decades be, it be ahead of its time that what we were selling. And our client was British Leyland, and so I travelled all around the country to all the Leyland sites. And Leyland at that time had two hundred and fifty thousand employees and a hundred sites. Wow. When you look at you know, and we were just the one of the large because we were in the large company, so we had GC Courtholds. There was also, there were so many large company British Steel. Yeah, I used to go to some of the British Steel sites, and you know they had so many people, and all of those have all gone. And it's really quite scary when you when you look at it. But I loved British Leyland. I loved the the mixing with everybody and. One of my talents always was that I would be as interested in the gay man as I would with the directors. Uh, it wouldn't matter. It doesn't matter to me who you are or what you are. It's, it's about you as a person. And, and I think that's, that came from a benefit for me as a child, that I didn't have this difference in, in people. And that's held me in good stead through to now. Kevin and I always had these theories about people and and the people-based companies and how you looked after your clients, how you should be looked after um, staff-wise. And we used to get in trouble with the company all the time because we were doing too much for the client or, you know, we were just, well, this is how we think it should be done. And we were quite gobby, to be honest, and quite opinionated and pretty hard to employ, I would think. And so about 10 years later, By which time we got married, got two kids. And Kevin was working for a company and he loved the products. It was very, very large databases. And um, it was taken over. The company he worked for was taken over by NCR, you know, the cash register people. And so we decided to... Start our own business. I called it putting right the moans in the pub on a Friday night. If you want to know what's wrong with your company, go and listen to your staff on a Friday night. Filter out the perpetual moaners and listen to the rest. And you'll find out, you will you know, but you've really got to listen. Yeah. And that's what we did. We just decided to, we didn't care how any other company was run. We just wanted to do it the way that we wanted to do. It. We wanted to make a profit. But for us, making a profit it was never a destination. It was always just fuel to grow. It was to, you know, so we've always fed back into the business, whatever we've made. And it's just grown and it's grown. We've got now got 360 staff. Um, we're working with central governments. Um, we do the National Fraud Initiative for Benefit Fraud. And we've worked with them for 25 years.
0: Are you a techie person? though? I mean, I just find this remarkable that you had no O-levels. I mm-hmm. think you said you later sat one O-level, so you yeah. did get one in the end. Yeah. But essentially, you finished your schooling with zero O-levels, yeah. but you are the the tech brain, or you started off by being the tech brain of the company.
1: Yeah, and I think it, this is what drives me a lot on a, a lot of the community work I do with, with kids, because... I'm bright. I mean, you know, I'm I was so frustrated for my teachers because it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It's that I wouldn't do it. And when I was 40, I went back um, to Lincolnshire, to the grammar school that I went to. And I I first of all saw the head teacher um, there at the door. And uh, I said to her, was the physics teacher there? And she said, no, he's ill. And I said, oh, that's a shame because I finished my homework. And she says, uh, oh, I shall tell you that miracles happened eventually. And I thought, (laughs) you haven't thought. Um, But I saw the maths teacher, Mr. Windsor, and he asked me what I was doing, and we started synectics then. And I was telling him, and you know, the, and I was, you know, one of the main techies at that point. And um, he said, "I always knew you'd do well." I said, "You didn't. You're des- you it to the gutter." And he said, "No, you were walking a path, and you were going to fall one way or the other. Whichever way you fell was going to be spectacular. But there was something about you. I thought, no, she will fall the right way, and that's what drives me." because I see so many kids walking that exact path that I walked. Um, and it was a scary path. I mean, you know, I mean, um, when I look back at the, 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 the groups of people I got around me, the areas of West Brom where you would find me, I mean, it was, it was scary. Um, but I did fall the right way. And if I can help other kids... To live with it with, with what life throws them and then say, Right, I'm not going to be a victim of this. I'm going to be a product of it. I'm going to take everything, um, every strength that I've had to grow to get through what I've got through. And it's not an X Factor sob story by any means. And there's a lot of people a lot worse than I was. But for me, it's just taking that. And then, and then flipping it and making it so that's a strength rather than something that I resent. So um, I, I can talk about my childhood a lot now, because I'm completely okay with it. I'm completely okay that this girl couldn't make sense of the world. And in truth, there was no reason why she would be able to. I mean, I got an O level because I fancied a lad at Wednesbury College. And so and I heard that he was going to night class. So I stalked him and I went and signed up for the English. And I didn't carry on. I only carried on because I went off a lad. And the teacher got a um, a message to me the next year to say you really should come and sit the exam because you would do okay. And I got a B. And I didn't attend the classes and and I got a B for that. And then just recently I got an honorary doctorate from Staff's Uni. So I said, Well, I've gone from an I've got an O level and an honorary doctorate, <laughs> you know. And you don't need to have it.
0: What is it then, do you think though, that turns some very bright young people off education? Because Those are the people who, if they do fall in with the the wrong sort, to pardon the expression, who might end up being very clever drug dealers, very clever criminals. And obviously you want people to do as well as they can in life. What what could schools do better or differently based on your observation and experience?
1: I I think we need to be a lot more accepting on the difference in people. Um, And I think (laughs) to... To run an educational system you really have to try and cater for the the 30 to the 70 percent and you you can't spend because the below the 30 percent and the above the 70 percent take takes a lot of resource it takes a lot more time and so they tend to try and just box them into the middle and it doesn't work so at the moment i am chair of um. Department of Education board in Stoke-on-Trent called the Opportunity Area. And this is where the Department of Education has taken 12 areas in the UK and given them all six million pounds to try and work with social mobility. And we work with all the schools and the local authority. And they asked me, and I was quite surprised that they would ask me, I mean, you know, uh, because it's me and Liz Barnes, who's the Vice-Chancellor of Staff's Uni. And, you know, I think, my goodness, you know, here I am, I wouldn't engage at school. And yet I would consider Liz as, you know, a good friend of mine. And I have to sort of not look down sometimes, you know, I just have to sort of carry on. But I have done a lot of work with social mobility and and it's worked for me because I get it. And I get it without judgment or pity. And I think that's the other thing, is that these kids don't want judgment and they don't want pity, they just want support. And they want support to be themselves. And to, you know, one of the biggest compliments I get, and I've got um, one of my leadership team um, who says it about me, she says, Carol has always let me be me. And she's always let me grow to what I could be, not what, not to fit in with something else. And that's what I try and do when I work with kids, when I work with my team, when I work with the players and the team at Port Vale in how can we get this. I don't want to have the the biggest budget. I want to have the team where we enable those players to become better than they even realise that they could be by tapping into their own potential.
0: Tell me a bit more about your childhood then, because as you describe it, you could have fallen spectacularly the other way. You're shuttling between the Lincolnshire countryside and the urban West Midlands in the black country in West Brom. Did that scar you?
1: Um, I mean, it leaves marks. Of course it does. I understood all what it was like to be on the outside. Because when I was in Lincolnshire, I was a townie who spoke with this Brummy accent, and you know what I can do to you. And when I was in West Brom, they called me a country bumpkin. So I always knew what it was like to be on the outside. And I always had this thing that I had to create my own, my own world in some way, you know, like catching the bus and going and watching matches and things like that, you know, that other girls didn't do. And so I never fitted in my kids have tried to do this as well. My kids have always been, oh, this is in crowd, mum. I really want to be part of the in crowd. And I remember being like that when I was a kid. And I said, yeah, I want to be a part of the in crowd. And with, the, with my kids and with myself, yeah, I make a plan. And we go and get into the in crowd. And Then you think, I don't want to be part of this because it's actually very samey. And I can't be samey. I, you know, I'll go and discover bits about me. So when I was about 30 no a bit older than that I was about 32 I um, I went to a counsellor because I'd become a mum and I had no idea how to become a mum I had no idea what it was I had no role model I had nothing that I could look at and say oh yeah that's how we're going to do things and so I wanted to go and learn I needed to learn more about me and so I went to this counsellor I had this two-hour session with her, and I told her all about my childhood and all about me and how I you know, I operated. And she said at the end, yeah, you know, I can help you. We'll start off with assertiveness training. You obviously haven't understood me at all. I said, because I'm I'm one of the most assertive people you'll find. And she said, no, Carol, you're one of the most aggressive I've come across. You're not assertive at all. And it, she might as well have just thrown a bucket of water over me. And I remember going home and I was saying to Kevin, this woman said I'm aggressive. And he went, yeah. <laughs> you are, and you have no boundaries, and you, you know, you just say things, and uh, oh my gosh, and that was amazing for me. So I did a lot of work with her. Until we got to a point where she said, well, actually, I've gone, you've gone as far as I can go with you. You need to go and do something else. So I, I signed up for a two-year psychotherapist course in Manchester. And I, I didn't want to be a psychotherapist. I just wanted to understand me and I wanted to understand people. And I wanted to understand how I could fit into the world a lot better. And that's carried on. I think, you know, we still do that. I still do a lot of, I've introduced it into, into Vail team growth, leadership growth, all this sort of thing. You know, if people say, well, what's your secret? I think that's been my secret, is to actually get to like myself. And once you're okay with yourself, you can then go and deal with other people.
0: You made your way then in the world of technology, with your own company with Kevin from the late 70s onwards into the 80s. At that point, there were very few women in tech, still very few women in tech, but many fewer then than there are now. Was that a help or a hindrance?
1: As I say, I was a daddy's girl. My dad had a, a motor body repair shop, and it was very laddish, and he was very laddish. And the police would it would always go round and have cups of tea there and people would go round. And my dad always wanted me to be a boy. He, he wanted a son, and he didn't get one. So it was, I've I've been fine in male company. Um, it's, it's, I have no issue with it at all. And it shocks men sometimes, um, and say even up to now it, it, with, um, being in football, which again is a very, very male world, but I can, I can be, when I first went into IT, I did what a lot of women do when they go work into a men's world. I, I tried to outman the men. And so I drank more than they did. I carried more boxes of paper. I swore more. I said dirtier jokes. They had pictures of nude women inside some of the cabinets. So I insisted on having a cabinet at the end where I put pictures of nude men. This is the 70s. Then one day I looked at it and I thought, I don't need to do this. I absolutely don't need to do it. And and I stopped. I stopped drinking Guinness and I drank vodka and lime and was a lady. Um, (laughs) But I can... I can dip into that man's world and I don't now try and outman the men. I'm very keen that we all have masculine and feminine within us and that they coexist and that it's fine and you can be that sort of, that male-y bit of, of yourself at the same time as you can be that feminine bit and neither's right and neither's wrong. They're both just part of you. I quite enjoy working in a in a male world but I don't but I also like I've loved this lockdown because I've really got connected to that feminine side of me within the house and within you know the garden and, and the stuff that I'm doing so I like both and again I'm, I'm okay with that.
0: And when we've spoken before, you're very conscious of where you are. I mentioned in my introduction that you're in a part of Stoke-on-Trent, one of the six towns of Stoke-on-Trent called Burslem. Burslem, for people who don't know, was at the epicentre of the pottery industry. Many of the famous names of pottery were based in Burslem. Sadly, they are there no more. So it's a pretty run-down, pretty poor part of the world. And yet there you are with 360 employees uh, and a Queen's Award for enterprise. And I get the sense that for you, that's that's preferable to being in an industrial estate somewhere in the southeast of England where there's already a relative degree of prosperity.
1: Yeah, but that's also part of my, my personal growth, because when we first started the business, we were in Newcastle-under-Lyme. And I was very keen that we didn't call it Stoke. You know, I used to call it Newcastle, actually, because if people said, oh, you've got your place at Stoke, i go, no, it's Newcastle, actually.
0: And for people who don't get that local nuance in Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme is on the other side of Stoke-on-Trent to Burslem. It's much leafier. It's the, if you like, the Birmingham side rather than the Manchester side uh, of Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, traditionally wasn't part of the city of Stoke-on-Trent, although it's now been co-opted. But the, the, whereas Burslem is very much the heartland of, of the potteries.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that for... I mean, I don't want to get too sort of deep and psychobabbley with this, but I mean, I think for me, I I went through a lot of time. You, you, know, you go through this time of having to prove yourself, to prove that you're okay. My dad used to always say that, you know, don't get ideas above your station, Carol. You know, you, you've got to... I remember when we got the Queen's Award and I was sat in Buckingham Palace at the, uh, <laughs> the drinks party and I was sat on one of the settees inside Buckingham Palace thinking, I think I might have gone... Past me station, Dad. I'm sorry. You know <laughs> <laughs> uh, But so for me, I I went through a long time of needing to prove to the world that I I wasn't that girl who played truant and that I I was somebody else. So I needed it to be Newcastle under Lime, not Stoke on Trent, because it had more kudos, you know, it it said more about us. I need a house with the two acre garden and the swimming pool and the, you know, the R eight car and all the rest of it to say, look at me, I'm, you know, look at here, world, I'm a success. And no one can tell me I'm not. And then again, I got to a point where actually, I don't need this. So I've now got my, you know, my little RS3 and, and I love it. I don't need a sports car to show anybody that I'm I'm a success. I don't need the big house. We're, we're selling the big house. We moved out of it. And and what we found, you know, Kevin and I had this long chat and we decided that having I mean, lived together and worked together for 40 years, what we really needed was a bit of space to be okay when we came together. And so, but we were still gonna to work together. So we had to create the space outside of work. So we bought two terraced houses, six doors apart. And he lives in number nine and I live in 17. And it's wonderful because, you know, people say, have you separated? No, not in the slightest. We're very, very happily married, but we both needed that space to be, be us. And if you live together and you work together, and you're like that for 24 hours, seven days a week, there is nowhere to create the space. And we didn't want to stop working together because we work very well. So that's why we decided to do it at home. This is us of saying, right, okay, what is practical and works for us? The neighbors think it's wonderful. I mean, they just they just howl. Um, but uh, you know, again, it's yeah, this is why we do. We run Synecdox differently. We just run it the way that we want to do. We're not trying to prove anything. We just want it to be how we're comfortable with. We want Port Vale to be what we're comfortable with. And, you know, when I rang all the players to say, you know, thank you very much for this season and have a good summer, because we didn't have that end of season get together. One of the players texted me the next day and said, I've never had an owner ring me to say thank you, and and to wish me a good summer. And I text back and said, turns out I'm different.
0: (laughs) You've got this very successful business now, 360 employees, the Queen's Award for Enterprise, but we're crossing two very deep and challenging rivers, aren't we? One is coronavirus, which is clearly a, a global moment of difficulty. We've also got Brexit and you are, if nothing else, you're an exporter of your software. So this is a very successful business as of today. Where where does it go forward with those challenges?
1: We've been very lucky in that we, we moved into fraud, not committing it, but... Uh... <laughs> Very early on, because it didn't set up in ninety two to become fraud based. It was you know, it was just about using large amounts of data. Fraud kind of came to us through the government, and and that's been our area. And fraud is pretty touch wood. It's pretty recession proof, because actually the deeper the recession goes, the more fraud goes up, and and that's the one thing that um, organisations can't really cut back too much on you know if you're in marketing or you know other areas which are very important but ultimately are nice to have that's one thing but to manage your risk your financial risk for banks and insurance companies and the government is essential and so we've been lucky in in that's the area we find we I mean, don't get me wrong it's not easy and you know we, we're having to work a lot to keep what we're offering relevant and relevant to today so we're having a lot of meetings at the moment to say how will coronavirus affect fraud how can we offer services that are going to be what our clients need before they need them rather than as a as a reaction so there's a, there's a lot of of looking at what's going on in the country and and trying to be there and be ready and give our clients what they need and and I think for us also we've always always been the underdog i like that i mean i'm i'm very happy i mean our main competitor is experian so which is why with port vale it's no problem to me that the main competitor in the city is stoke city because you just it's just the same old and to to be successful as an underdog You have to offer something that the big ones can't offer, and that's personalization. We can be a lot more personal um, and a lot more people-based because we can give it that time that it needs. And this, again, is going back to my below your 30%, above your 70%. We can target on those people and give them a service that if you were running a large company, you couldn't because you just couldn't fit it in to the overall flow.
0: What about Brexit?
1: It doesn't make a lot of difference to us. We work in the States and Canada. We don't work in... We do a bit in Europe, but we're really in the States and Canada. And I think it's going to be... I think that coronavirus will will knock any concerns we had of Brexit into a, a cocked tap because I think with coronavirus, it's, it's fairly indiscriminate, isn't it? And it's going to have unintended consequences throughout the globe and I think the next few years is going to be very very interesting because you know I I can see travel being cut back and I think the way that we view the the world as as a global market will come under under scrutiny and you know we'll be looking at, at different ways I hope that a lot of of industry comes back to the UK. I think you know we sold, uh, we let a lot go over, and you know you really feel it in in Stoke because Stoke is now actually producing a lot more pottery than it has been for for decades. And I would like to see that focus this this community feel that we've had about supporting each other during the coronavirus is, is how do we take that onto an industrial platform and and help it to grow our our industrial communities back up? Because Stoke-on-Trent has got so much to offer. There are you know, some very talented skills people there and we don't use them and it would be great if we could again. And that's my hope. That's my positive hope is that we as a, as industrialists within the city, can bring some of it back and become a bit more self supportive than we have been.
0: Carol Shanahan, thank you very much indeed. Uh, uh, you can follow Carol on Twitter. You'll search. She's got various Twitter handles, actually. I've got the two. Uh, go on, then.
1: I've got the PVFC, Carol, which is the football. And I decided to keep that very separate to the um, Sinsolve, which is the Synectic Solutions, um, for those two two bits of me I decided I didn't want them to to sort of merge so they're they're separate on twitter
0: there you go so you can follow carol on twitter follow me on twitter at goldberg radio if you want to drop me an email suggest a guest or a story to me or if you just want to give me a compliment I don't mind goldberg radio at gmail.com same if you want to sponsor this podcast too look forward to seeing you next time cheers thanks for listening